0: users were so happy that we were on discord and helping them that they start helping each other you just genuinely want to help like people and the community and if you can channel that energy and that authenticity it'll just happen
1: this is contributor a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them i'm eric anderson We are live today with Tanmay Gopal of Hasura. And this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for some time. One, because Tanmay is a wonderful person, and I'm sure I'll enjoy it. But also because Hasura is kind of an exceptional project. Worth spending some time discussing. Thanks for coming, Tanmay.
0: Thanks a lot for having me, Eric. And uh, hello to all the listeners.
1: We could start on so many things, but let's do our usual and have you ground us in what Hasura GraphQL Engine is.
0: Yeah. No, um, so Hasura is a data access engine, and what that essentially means is that we aim to replace that traditional kind of three-tier stack that you have with the API gateway, the app server, and the ORM uh, that is usually required for you to build applications, and we want to replace that with a neat little box called Hasura, so that uh, people who are kind of building modern applications, they can focus on, you know, data and logic, and not be bothered by anything else that is an infrastructural concern you know while building or operating and that's kind of where hasura fits in and so the idea is that you know if you're building an application especially if it's an application that and you want to leverage existing data what you do is you you fire hasura up as a container or on a cloud wherever and you point that to your data sources and hasura has like a nifty ui or a or a json thing and you configure that and you say hey these are the data sources i want to kind of bring in These are the relationships within that data source or across data sources. And these are the authorization rules. The authorization rules are critical. That's why you usually build your own APIs to absorb that part of the business logic. And as soon as you set that configuration up, you know, you have a production-ready GraphQL API. In fact, we had support for REST as well. And so you have this API that's good to go. And the dream of uh, having self-serve access to data so that you can go ahead and build stuff is, uh, is unlocked, right? So effectively, you're kind of Compressing maybe three quarters of uh, worth of time into maybe a week or so, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a magical experience. Like what I really feel happy about is you know, developers in the community, users are just like it's just it's magical. I and I love I love hearing that.
1: And you you do do a lot. You mentioned you know the authorization. You mentioned connecting to existing sources. Perhaps I'm naive, but some of the things that first jump out to me was the connection to po- like giving you GraphQL on Postgres felt like a place where people are like, oh, I know what that is and I want it. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch more to it, but I imagine that's a part of it.
0: That's the emotion that you get started with, right? You're like, I want to build this application and I want to build this with the latest and greatest stack, right? I want to build my front end with whatever is the new JavaScript framework today. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I love the JavaScript ecosystem and the base at which it's evolving because it's just a sign of maturing in the industry that you have a framework for every type of use case. You have this brilliant kind of Stack uh, and you're ready to go or you want to use serverless functions because you just want to write code and have it work And have it scale and you know, not worry about it uh, and you want to do this But but you just can't because you're like Crap this data is inside um, You know, we started off with Postgres and now we have SQL server and we doing BigQuery and MySQL and, and Oracle and stuff like that And you're like, but this data is just in my database. How do I get it out? Right, and there's a bunch of stuff that I need to do in the middle to actually get that out in a high quality way, right? So that's where it all starts, right? It starts with this urge to say, I need access to this so I can build stuff. Um, And that's where Hussara sneaks in. And and the idea is that, you know, it takes you like a few seconds or a few minutes to to really just get started with that experience. And, you know, you instantly feel like weeks melt away when you're like clicking on a button and just getting your API. And then you start configuring it because you need to set up authorization and all of of the other things that you need to do uh, to, to make that data access piece work.
1: Totally. Great. Uh, given that, let's also figure out how we got here. We've talked over the years, so I know part of the story, and it fascinates me. But how did you get on started on this journey?
0: Yeah, yeah. that's a, It's a trip down memory lane. But uh, it, it, it started off with me and, and my co-founder and my co team, and we kind of banded together with this abstract idea and this feeling that application development is just way too complicated. And it's just 20, 30 million developers today, right? Like the world needs hundreds of millions of developers. That is the future of, you know, that, that is where this lands up. But there's missing abstractions. There's, there's missing components in the infrastructure that make it painful for us to get from here to there, right? To get to this future where application development is at the speed of thought. And to do that, we had this hypothesis that there is this piece that people spend a tremendous amount of time with, uh, which is this data access piece. And it was, it was a little bit out there. And so what we did was we started a consulting firm and we started building this data access layer. We built a bunch of other components as well. Um, and we started working with, you know, everybody from like the largest banks in the world to like the smallest startups, right? To like an old company building its first digital asset, right? Companies of all kinds, engineers of all kinds. And we started using this product in the work that we did. And this was, you know, around the whole time that the Docker and Kubernetes movement was happening. We were earlier adopters there and whatnot, right? So we were seeing that, Cloud native transformation happen, and and the role of this piece in that cloud native transformation, and the API that we built at that time was our version of GraphQL. So we kind of invented our own GraphQL, which was it looks almost exactly like GraphQL, but like a JSON form of GraphQL. So if you're familiar with GraphQL, right, you'll have like query and then curly brace and users curly brace ID and name. So you kind of specify what you want. Our query language was type select fields user nested id yeah right? right like it was like a json version of the graphql query
1: yeah you totally invented graphql in parallel yeah yeah
0: yeah so we did this in parallel and then i i remember before we decided to kind of wind down the consulting firm and take the graphql engine out and raise money and launch the product and stuff like that to the community i remember in, in 2016 we looked at graphql and we looked at the spec and we were like nah this is never gonna take off <laughs> like this is hard like who Will ever build a GraphQL server, right? Like, why, like, h- how, how will you use this? There's so much cost to kind of putting it together. And then, you know, when it started picking up, and this was coincided with the time when we decided to build the company around Asura, sort of, we decided to kind of use GraphQL because, as an intent and as a specification, it absorbed exactly what we, the value that we wanted to give to people, right? Which is self serve access to data over an API, right? You want to live like a self serve API. And GraphQL embodies that intent like nothing else that we've seen before, right? It's just shamelessly geared towards making it easier for humans to explore their API and to, by themselves, explore the API and integrate themselves. And so we added support for GraphQL in 2018. That's when we launched the open source project. And then it, it really kind of clicked with the community, right? I like think in the first year, we went from like zero to two million downloads. In the second year, we went from two million to hundred million downloads. And we start seeing a lot of good uh, mission-critical traction, in really large companies as well, which was nice and which kind of then sent the foundation for starting our commercial offerings. So that's how it came together. (laughs)
1: Wow. Tell me about the team formation. So these were people you had worked with before or you kind of came together at the consulting firm?
0: So the early team, the core team came together at the consulting firm. So it was me and my co-founders at the consulting firm. I came from a machine learning, computer vision background. I done my bachelor's and master's and I was, I, I wanted to unsubscribe from the ML and the AI. I was like, I cannot, I just cannot. Like there's, there's it's, it's amazing. It's great. But I feel like there's some more systemic problems that I want to really work on. It is closer uh, closer to the metal. I was more of like a systems person at heart. And then I wanted to start doing this thing. And my co-founder at the time was going through a similar journey. She came from a computational biology background. She did some research work for a while. Her work from there just got published in Nature like a year ago or whatever, right? And uh, and then she was just getting frustrated with research and she was like, what is happening? Like, great, we can do biofuel with like algae, but like, I do not want to do this for 10, 15 years because I don't know if this will see the light of day. And then we we got connected and then we started working on, on, on stuff together and, uh, and then you know, Hasura came out of that. And the early team was, you know, the, the other members in the core team were folks that I knew from university, folks that I'd worked with in university before and, and uh, one of my juniors from university as well. So that was the core team that came together that began the founding team at Hasura as well.
1: And we could spend some time on this, I imagine. How do you find your initial users? The magic behind Hasura is in part not just the technology, but the community building.
0: That makes sense. It's, a, it's, it's always like a chicken and egg thing, right? You're like, how do I have the product first, but then I need the community, right? And then I need users, right? So we were confident that we were solving a really painful problem, right? We would take away a lot of grunt work that people were doing. And we were confident about that because we were our own users, right? And from there, the exercise became, we have the product and we know that it works, how do we start getting the community around it, right? And I remember before we launched and while we were adding, changing our uh, API, well, we're not changing, but adding the GraphQL API in addition to our API, we talked to almost everybody in the GraphQL ecosystem at the time, and we did kind of demos with them, right? And we were like, hey, this is what it does, right? And then we heard it back from them. We were like, what did they get from this demo, right? Um, And from our list of 20 things that we wanted to talk about in the product that we thought were cool, we whittled that down to a small list of things, things that, that we thought were awesome, but people were like, eh, and, and then other things where people were like, well, this is amazing, and we were like, hmm, you know, we never thought about it. Um, and so we started putting that together. And then, you know, after we open sourced it, we started putting the word out. One of the moments was, you know, when it, when it got traction on, on Hacker News, a lot of things kind of get that traction on Hacker News initially, but then the question then becomes, how do you sustain that, right? And so after we did that, my, my co-founder who heads our community marketing efforts, right, she was just absolutely nonstop about making sure that we can keep talking about the same things that people liked um, and keep putting it out there because, because it's resonating with people, right? It is resonating with people. We need to keep driving that so that it's, it's top of mind for enough people to get to a critical mass, right? The way I think about it is that, you know, if, if like hundred people look at your product, one of them, yeah, you know, hundred people say that your product is cool, one of them will actually bother trying it out this weekend, right? When they have some time. And then out of hundred people who try it out, only one of them is going to be like a social media person who recommends it to other people, right? Most of us developers are not like hanging out 24-7 in conferences and on social media and on Reddit and like screaming from like the rooftops. This is the tool I use, right? I mean, you, you don't do that. But some people do and they're very connected in the community, right? Uh, and they talk about it. So, so getting that conversion from hearing about it it, it, it is a problem that I want to solve, that I want to get solved to trying it out. And then from trying it out to having such a good experience that... If somebody asks you about it uh, or or you feel like evangelizing or talking about it, you're like, hey, I just tried this. It was amazingly cool. Right. Well, what do you think? Right. So so getting that kind of critical mass going is it was the most important thing. And, and we were just absolutely brutal about that getting started experience. Right. We were like, we care about nothing else. We care about nothing else. But from the time that you click on the get started button on Hasura, you're like, I, I look at the top fold. I, I go to GitHub. I, I look at the repo, and I, the first thing I should see is a way to get started. And from that point to getting your first GraphQL query, it has that. There, there should be no extra concepts that come to your. Way. There should be no. We, we don't want to introduce any nouns to you, any any, any concepts to you, right? Like we call it yeah. nouns, right? We have like a. There's an informal thing of saying that are you are you trying to add a new noun to the product you do not add nouns to the product right? oh, like nouns are bad great. right <laughs> also fits in well with the fact that we're a functional shop so like objects are bad verbs are good we're like yeah, nouns yeah, are bad, bad get bad. rid of any nouns no concepts that the that that the developer the person that's trying it out needs to be introduced to till they just get to that first GraphQL API right and so as enough people got to that right People start talking about it, right? And then, of course, we were very diligent about making sure that we are putting out enough to the community in a way that, in a way that they want to consume this information, that it builds enough critical mass, right? And then, once that critical mass builds up, right, the second phase of this was we did kind of the opposite of, of, of sometimes what the popular wisdom uh, is that you know don't talk to all of your users uh, directly. Right in the in the late stages, right? You don't want to do that because there's just too many too many people, right? But what we did was we opened up every single line of communication there was with everybody, with everybody. This like our entire radical transparency, team. yeah, just radical transparency. And we were just we were just helping our users of all types, right, all the time on our Discord, and we were just at it continuously, right? It was really important for us because the the engineer, the early engineering team, who are now yeah, some of those early engineering leaders are now PMs, right? They were just continuously exposed to feedback from users, right? And we were also kind of understanding different types of use cases, what people are building, right? Uh, why are they building it this way? Why did they come this way? So we would take those insights, and then within a few days, we would react to those insights and say, okay, there's a very pressing use case. We should really talk about this. And then we talk about this, and it resonates with more people right? So that had a lot of kind of good secondary effects, right? Because we use that knowledge not just for improving the product and the experience and prioritizing that roadmap really aggressively in the early days but then also also building a culture of community in the company all the way from like the engineer to me as the CEO to everybody, right? And that had a really good impact because a year after that, right? A few months after that even, that became kind of like a it became like a flywheel, right? Because users were so happy that we were on Discord and helping them that they start helping each other, right? And then it became a community where, although we still hang out on Discord most of the times, most questions as they come up get answered by other people in the community, right? And we're like, "Oh, this is cool. This is this is nice, right?" So the the short answer to that is just a tremendous amount of work and love for users, right? You like you you just genuinely want to help like people and the community, and if you can channel that energy into that authenticity, it'll it'll just happen, right? You can't. I always feel that it's hard to fake add-on community as a hack, right? To be like, oh, we use the community to grow. I mean, sure, that's maybe the end result of what you're doing, but it's really hard to channel the right energies to do that well, right? It it, it doesn't feel authentic to anybody, to you or to the, the community.
1: Were there any critical pieces of content? I mean, it sounds like it was generally user love and, and lots of little steps over time, but I remember a three-factor app seemed quite popular. Were there any kind of things that really accelerated things? Um.
0: Not really. I think there were lots of like small spikes. Right, um, the three factor app thing really did very well in kind of absorbing that idea, and we're going to do a, an overhaul and a relaunch of that uh, this year um, in in the next few months. Uh, but you know, people people really kind of bought into that idea. And they were like, hmm, this this makes a lot of sense. I don't want to have this app server in the middle. I just want data and logic, and I just I want to get done with it. And and so so. A lot of the times when we, when we saw those kinds of use cases from the community that seemed like it was a group of people, what we would do is we would take that and then we would do really good content around it, right, to help people who have that use case, right, and we would try to distribute that. In the relevant communities. So, you know, when there were new frameworks popping out on the front end side of things, right, when there was different kinds of Postgres use cases that people had because we were the only people doing like geolocation queries and
1: and, and we were
0: the uh, only people doing subscriptions in real time at the time, right? So, we would use a lot of those niche kind of use cases, right, to help spread the word. But it's kind of ironic that sometimes the most mainstream use case is not what you want to talk about because it gets lost So what you want to talk about is the niche use case that only a few people are excited about but they're so excited that they help spread the word and then eventually Maybe not too many people use it for the niche use case, right?
1: I'm always googling new frameworks and and niche technologies as, as part of my job. And I used to I used to tell people that I run into DigitalOcean all the time, like they're they're always creating content around X Y Z thing. And now I'm running into Hasura all the time. It's like oh, <laughs> I, I want I want an XJS app and I want to do X Y Z on it. Here's a Hasura right. thing. Or you know I'm I'm using uh there's that GraphQL less. You know some Right, GQLS some yeah, yeah yeah GQLS yeah, yeah. framework. Casura's yeah. got the first uh, you know <laughs> result on like how to use it, and so I think there's some real power to that kind of attacking niches. Exactly, because because all those niches represent an
0: intent, right? And that intent is really powerful, right? Even if that particular use case might not be the thing, so uh, so it becomes very useful to spread the word. The the other thing that also really helped was we have a very kind of. If I may say so myself, in lack of humility here a little bit, there's a lot of really good engineering in the product, right? And and so we made this kind of consistent effort to keep kind of talking about the internals and the engineering and some of the engineering choices that we made, right? And that also resonated with people, and you know, that would also frequently get people talking about us, right? Even today, because of some of the early work that we did, I, I like to say that we started the performance wars with GraphQL. Uh, before we came along, nobody was talking about performance, and we were like, "Oh, this is just five x faster, fifty x faster, hundred x faster than whatever you would do," right? Um, and and that's obviously exciting to people because it's like performance, right? But when you kind of talked about the engineering of like how we did that, how we made that happen, uh, how we took an approach that was inspired more by compilers and databases. On the app server, uh, rather than approaches that were popular, that are popular on the the application server building, right, and that got us a lot of kind of good community engagement, right, and that that was that was very positive as well, um, despite the fact that we built in Haskell, uh, which is a well, niche language. So, uh, so you know, that's that's
1: <laughs> despite that headwind, yeah. Let's talk about conferences for a bit because I think five years ago, had you built this wonderful open source community, you would have imagined building kind of a flagship in person conference at some expo hall. And you know, COVID came it may, may have been a problem for you, but at the same time, I think you've helped define how maybe conferences are done in the future. I mean, tell me about how you how you approach conferences, events, I should call them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a very good. I, I think we Broadstreet, my co-founder, she's she's built a really good team of people who who can just execute like really, really well. And again, that culture of community and wanting to do something for the community and having them genuinely involved and making people feel good, that energy that that uh, in the core team has and now is a kind of company culture thing, right? Is uh, really helped, right? So, so that allowed us to transition quite seamlessly into the COVID world, where in fact, we were able to do much more than what we would have done if we were offline, right? We start reducing the conference size and we changed the formats a little bit we try to make it kind of as engaging for people as possible without it being like a drag on your time. Having good kind of content from the community, from us, from other people that we invite and stuff like that. That's also had a really good impact, right? Both for us on the company and the product front, but also also for the community. So we you know we do we do GraphQL Asia, uh, which we started uh, many years ago, which is now actually GraphQL Global or whatever, but we didn't want to change the word. So the last two years, we've just been calling it GraphQL Asia. And then we have the, uh, you know, we did, we did Hasura Khan, which is, uh, you know our user conference. We did the first edition of that last year, uh, which was which was you know, amazing success for us. And um, mm-hmm. your first user conference is always a little bit, you know, you're always a little bit nervous, right? You're like, uh, how many users will come? What do they talk about, right? And that was just it was just spectacular because a lot of our kind of our mission critical users kind of really came and talked about. How they were using Hasura and and you know what they learned, what doesn't work, what works. Um, it, was, it was a good kind of knowledge sharing thing with the community, and then the Enterprise GraphQL Conf, uh, which we which we did. So so that allowed us to kind of keep a you know it's, it's it's not too heavy for us to organize a conference now. A small conference is very easy. We have a good kind of community of people. We know who's interested in what, and so we're able to kind of gradually amplify that. Right. So it's been much easier than trying to do it in the real world. That would that would suck. Right, you have to figure out like a venue, get a lot of people in, logistics, and, and nobody actually cares too much about it. Right? They're like, well, we want to just meet people and talk to them, so that that works out well in the online world.
1: Yeah, a glimpse into the future. This is what events will look like going forward.
0: This is what it should be, right? Yeah, this is what like when I was in, when I was in school and university, I would be, I would I would think about like you know why why are we traveling to places? Why wouldn't we? why don't we have like 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 Starbucks cafes with like a wall that's just a VC wall and like a video conferencing wall and then you sit on this side and somebody else is in Starbucks in a different city and you're having a coffee together. That should be the reality. Why are we even traveling? I'm, I'm hoping this happens now. I'm hoping we're all like unsubscribed from traveling. Let's just, uh, <laughs> let's just stop online. <laughs>
1: yes, we'll cancel travel.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Random other topic for you. I, I ran into one of your users and we were talking about the benefits of Sura and, and this person said, you know i think what the server team may not realize is that the secret sauce is in user authorization they're like we went for the, you know the ease of setup and and taking out the toil between setting up our back ends but but we're staying and we're hooked because the of the authorization framework is that representative yeah it is
0: it is it is it is very true um uh, it's it is also a very deliberate choice for us that was almost an accident of history. So when we started building our authorization layer, so what our authorization layer essentially does is says API call comes in, but this API call obviously can't access all elements of data, right? Because if I'm a bank user on my app and I'm accessing my account balance, I should see my account balance, right? And there might be many complex conditions that determine that accessibility, right? Like, am I am I blocked right now? Am I on a free tier? Is this my account, right? Account.userid equal to me, right? Or account.managers, uh, contains current user ID, right? There's lots of conditions that determine that accessibility, right? Usually, people write code to do this, right? We just made it kind of a declarative condition of the graph, right? So, so in that graph of data that you have, can you specify a condition that determines whether this entity is accessible or not? And then we compile that into the, into the data fetch query, and that's how it works. Now, the reason that we built this and, and this system is very similar to RLS or row-level security that you'd see in advanced databases, right? And I remember when we were... I built the first version of our GraphQL engine out of Mongo before before I started. And then our lead engineer and kind of went, my architect came along and he was like, uh, what the hell is this? Please switch this out and we're going to replace this with Postgres. So he, he removed all of my code. He rewrote the whole thing to work with Postgres, right? And at the time, Postgres did not support RLS. Right, and we were like, okay, cool. We'll just we'll we, we build RLS. Right, that's that's what we. I mean, that's the model that we want at the application level. And at that time, we knew that it would be very useful to have to build the RLS at the application layer. It was a very deliberate choice. But in the interest of you know building things, we might not have done that. We might have just used Postgres RLS had it been out because you know then it would have worked. But then once we did that, right, the amount of power that we could unlock by owning authorization for all of your data systems, by having that in one central place, became extremely powerful, right? And and this to a degree will, uh, this, this control of this authorization system and, and providing value for authorization is beyond massive because it's not just this first element of accessing data and having authorization to it. The authorization of data is the most critical aspect to solving problems like caching. So, if you think about like the, 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 the one of the last complex infrastructure problems to solve is OLTP caching. Right? And this is hard. This is hard because you fetch restaurants on your app, I fetch restaurants on my app, but I'm in a different city, you're in a different city. Even though the API call is the same, we're fetching different pieces of data because we're different people. We, our identities are different, our authorization rules are different. So, the system cannot cache automatically because it's the same API call but how can I cache it, right? Because it's different, Like same API call made by different people is different results. But because Hasura has that authorization engine built in, it understands, Hasura can understand that, that this is a group of people, the, the, the cache key is city. And because the cache key is city, Hasura can start caching automatically. Right, we've already done this, and we've seen seen really great kind of success with some users, and we really start talking about it towards the end of the year. But but this is going to be massive for people, right? Because they're just going to be like, oh, API caching is solved, right? Like I don't have to do this by hand anymore, right? Like, like this cache key determination, maintaining maintaining this cache key, LRU, whatever, whatever. I don't care about it. Like I just wanted to cache whenever it should cache, right? And so that authorization engine is is a very very powerful piece to have. And I'm, I'm happy that uh, users are feeling that because yeah. that's at that's the of is.
1: And then, uh, awesome, another topic for you. My GraphQL experience has been such that the first thing I'm attracted to is the API, the JSON-like, but then you discover this whole world of, of federation and stitching. And, you, and, and I feel like that may have been the, the bigger idea at Facebook that, for me, didn't catch on until later. Help me understand the, the role You know, you started mostly on GraphQL for Postgres but I feel like you're moving into a broader story of just GraphQL for all the things. And I imagine part of that's federation and stitching.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very topical topic for everybody in the GraphQL ecosystem, right? So slightly contrary to, to what you said, I think was the, the use case for GraphQL at Facebook was very different for the rest of the world. Because GraphQL is, Facebook is a very, uh, very unique engineering company, right? Like it's not a kind of product that is a pattern, Right, it's it's very weird. It is extremely high concentration of technical talent and extremely rapid growth, right? Like unprecedented rapid growth, which is very different from most engineering products and especially products that already exist, right? Because they're already there, right? There's already all of this engineering there, right? So so when GraphQL came on Facebook, it was really kind of an, a, a very logical evolution for them, right? Where they had a monolith, they had one monolith, and they had an internal API for that monolith that their apps were using. And they were like, well, this, this API consumption is, is shitty for several reasons. We should just have something that does it as a spec, which is much better. And that's how GraphQL started. So there, there was no federation. There was no fetching from multiple data sources. It was a different API on top of that that would integrate very well with the existing business logic stuff that they already had. Right? Their data systems are are behind that tier, right? Which is very, very different from, again, from anything that the rest of the world uses, right? I mean, they rebuilt everything, right? They built their own programming language on PHP and whatever, right? So it was very, very different. But for the rest of the world, everybody is on microservices, right? For better or worse, because organizational complexity is hard. There's a lot of different products. The reality of it is that it's just easier if everybody just owns their own domains and does stuff. In this context is kind of where this idea of like federation or stitching comes in and where GraphQL has a potential kind of play here. But I feel like it's been, it's like slightly broken promises because what happens is that when people try to use GraphQL as just that API gateway layer that is just fronting multiple services, I think it's it's fine, but the ROI is not, it's not enough because what happens is that you're introducing another like operational complexity, right? You're Somebody has to build that GraphQL layer, somebody has to connect them together, um, to maintain it. It's, it's an extra network hop. This GraphQL API gateway doesn't play well with anything else in the GraphQL ecosystem. In, in the API ecosystem, it doesn't do caching, doesn't do security. There's no monitoring. I mean, there's no error codes. What what happens to alerting when an API goes down? Uh, the most popular GraphQL specification implementation is that you just you keep returning 200s. So so all of that tooling just goes out the window right? For what? So that people could build front-end apps faster, right? Now, that ROI justification is going to be valid for like very few people, right? For most people, that's not going to work out, right? And so that's kind of the API gateway piece on it, right? Uh, Where you want to stitch in these different things. Uh, But the most dominant use case there is there is one product that needs to speak to multiple services, and multiple services got built for some reason, which is why, and, and one product needs kind of an entry point into these multiple services. Now, this is not where a tremendous amount of ROI might come from, right? There is some ROI there, but it's restricted only to front-end applications and it's restricted only in the places where you want a backend for like a BFF, right? Uh, that kind of a layer. Um, where we see the GraphQL Federation being a lot more potent is for uh, polyglot data and in a sense, polyglot logic as well, right? Which is what is happening is that you have different data services, either databases or SaaS services, which are essentially databases in a way, right? Like, Salesforce and Stripe is a database with methods and returns data to you on API calls, right? So you have these data sources, and and whoever is building this needs these data sources to have semantic relationships and solve certain problems to get access to that. And now, you might use this for a variety of things. You might use this for building front-end applications, for somebody building something else, right? That's kind of the use case that we think about a little more. There's a heavy overlap, right? But we think about that use case a little more to basically empower this kind of idea of saying that you're getting data from wherever you want, right? So so there's different places where you can do this kind of federation and stitching at different layers. That's one point. The other small point is that sometimes it becomes a little bit of a buzzword where you're like, oh, I want to have a unified graph across my enterprise. Now, any enterprise person worth their salt who's done this work will realize that having a single unified graph across the entire enterprise is the worst possible idea. Right, like imagine you're a not, not like a product Silicon Valley company, but like you're just normal people building normal applications, enterprise or whatever, right? And those environments, what happens is that you have you have multiple, you have hundreds of LOBs, like hundreds of lines of business, right? You do not want to have a unified graph, because if you give one application team the full graph of the enterprise, they would lose their mind. They would be like, what is, ha- I do not want the unified graph. Please give me the three endpoints that I want. That's all I want. Do not give me the one million. Right So the, the reason why you want the unified graph and what that unified graph is uh, becomes really important, right? You, you can't just arbitrarily go in and say, let's mix all the things together, right? I mean, that's the nuance there, right? So very roundabout way of answering your question. but there we go. Those are my two minutes on federation and stitching, I guess.
1: Great. Uh, we have a few more minutes. where what haven't we covered Tanmay? And if, if not, we can go into where the project's headed from here and how how folks can get involved if they haven't already. In
0: terms of folks getting started, please just head to Hasura.io and head to the docs. You'll see a bunch of different ways of getting started. If you're looking at just playing around with Hasura and getting a feel for the product, um, Hasura Cloud is is a fairly seamless experience. Uh, In just a few clicks, you should be up and running. If uh, If you prefer local development or you have a database that you're running locally or somewhere, just download the Docker image, run that. Uh, and you should be good to go in a, in a few minutes as well. In terms of kind of where the project is going, more data sources that we're integrating with. You know, we did Postgres, SQL Server, BigQuery, which is our first OLAP, a and MySQL, and we'll be looking at you know document uh, databases towards the end of the year, and then a few more other relation databases. In the meantime. Very excited about uh, about a few very interesting use cases that we're working on with uh, with some of our kind of users at the, at the largest possible scale, where they're moving from single uh, Postgres to distributed Postgres, and Hus- how Hus- how is making that transition kind of seamless for them. I think it'll be for a lot of people. It's going to be an amazing use case to understand that hey, I can I can start off with this, and then I can scale to like petabyte storage with like tens of millions of concurrent. Requests or users coming in and stuff like that. So, so I think that there's this there's, there's a lot of exciting stuff there. Towards the end of the year, we're going to start launching a lot of uh, caching type use cases that we talked about, kind of like the CDN, but for your GraphQL APIs, I guess in a way. So we'll start talking a lot more about that. there's a lot of lot of very interesting stuff that's happening for users there. So that's that's roughly what's in store for the rest of the year.
1: Fantastic. I remember I had a question, but any comments on the Hasura logo? I remember when I first started, you had kind of a mascot that I thought was kind of endearing. You've since kind of uh, (laughs) professionalized a bit. Enterprised it a bit. Yes, this is true. That's right. This is true. Um, Yeah, yeah,
0: you know you know, you gotta, you don't, you don't like growing up sometimes, but you just got to grow up a little bit. The Asura word itself comes from a common South Asian root word uh, called Asura, which is like a demon, but not like a demon, demon is a bad demon, just demons are just another class of divine beings. In fact, in, in a lot of places in uh, Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, you'll see like these demon faces, which are like, you know, people with like, like faces with big eyes and like horns and like a tongue sticking out that people use outside their doors. You'll see them on trucks, that that people have to like kind of ward off evil right
1: yeah almost a protection thing yeah yeah
0: exactly like a protection thing right it's more like ward off evil right so so we were like oh, you you'd even see it on, on a lot of like kind of uh, hindu buddhist temples uh where you see demons on the temples on the sides so it's a very popular kind of original meme from like Dude from millennia, I guess. And and we were punning on demons like server-side processes and demons and we were in Haskell, so we said Hasura, whatever, right? That was the so we decided to use that as our logo and um, as our mascot. But then it was it was kind of hard to draw. It was more like an image rather than like a logo. Yeah. And well, you know, for some people in enterprise, they were like, "You, what is that? What is, what is this, <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 focus on the GraphQL. Don't worry about this piece. Uh, <laughs> but then we were like, okay, okay, you know what? Let's just let's just go like a little more black and white. We'll still try to keep a little bit of our character. And so now we have that logo that has kind of like gentle horns and then a lambda in the center. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's, that's fine. We still carry that legacy forward a little bit.
1: Yeah, very good. Congratulations. Tamayi, you've done amazing work, you and your team. It's great to have the input today and kind of how it all came together. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eddie. You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.